I'm pulling out of the parking lot. We all know what that means. It's time for the drive to work. And it meant I took my son to camp again. Okay, so uh, last time I started a podcast based on an article I had done talking about the inspiration of all the different blocks. So there have been 20 blocks in Magic, 10 of which I oversaw as head designer, 10 of which I didn't. So yesterday, or not, sorry, last podcast, I talked about the 10 that were that I had overseen. So uh, concept arc here, all the way back to Ravnica, original Ravnica. So today, I'm going to talk about the 10 before that. Um, now, I was around for all of these, but, well, I was around for all these, and, except for Ice Age, I was only there at the, at the end part of it. Um, but anyway, I was around for all these other blocks. So I'm going to talk about sort of what I believe the inspiration was. Um, these are a little more... Some of these I, I was very involved in. Some of these is more secondhand knowledge. Um, but anyway, we're going to start with Champions of Kamigawa, work our way back to Ice Age, and talk about the other ten blocks. Okay, so the important thing to remember, by the way, is as of Champions of Kamigawa, in the middle of Champions of Kamigawa, I took over as head designer. But we're going back in time. So before me, the head designer. Now, back in the day, the actual way the role work has changed a little bit. Um, I now focus just on design. Um, before me, the role was sort of a combined role where one person oversaw both design and development. Now we have a head designer and we have a head developer. So, um, but, so before me, the head designer slash developer uh, was Bill Rose, our current VP of R&D. So Bill Rose was before me. So the next batch of blocks I'm talking about, Bill Rose oversaw these blocks. These are Bill Rose's um, reign as head designer. Okay, so let's start with Champions of Kamigawa. So Bill had a vision for Champions of Kamigawa. And his vision was, what if we started with flavor rather than with mechanics? Which now seems quite quaint since we do it all the time. But back in the day, that wasn't something we had ever done before. So the way it used to work was the designers would design something. Uh, in the early, early days, the designers would also do something creative. But anyway, the idea was you mechanically would figure out what you want. And then after the mechanics were done, you would then get flavor that sort of made sense with the mechanics. Um, and so Bill's idea was, what if I go to the creative team and I say, okay, we're going to do all the creative work first. We're going to flesh out a world. And once we have a fleshed out world, only then will we start doing design. And so Bill went to talk with the creative team. Um, they, they, they examined a bunch of different ideas. Um, Bill really liked the idea of doing a top-down based on a real, a real source to, to be inspired by. Um, I know we looked at Greek mythology. I know we looked at Egyptian. I know we looked at a whole bunch of different, um, a different top-down things. But in the end, uh, Bill decided that Japanese would be cool. There was a lot of... Um, uh, anime, I mean, it's still big, but anime was real big. There's just a lot of, um, a lot of Japanese-inspired things that were very popular. I'm like, okay, this would be a cool thing to do. So they went to the creative team, who at the time was run, or uh, Brady Dahmer was in charge, and said to him, okay, make me a cool Japanese-inspired world. And so Brady and his team um, did a lot of research. Um, it turns out Brady actually was a big, big fan of uh, a lot of Japanese, of anime and Japanese Mizaki and all sorts of different Japanese-inspired uh, pop culture st- type things. Um, and they really did a lot of research, and they ended up coming up with the story. Um, the idea was, uh, a little twist that Brady had liked, was the idea of having a mono-black protagonist and a mono-white antagonist. 
So the story briefly was about this emperor, who was the mono-white antagonist, Kanda, who, for, for the good of his world, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, like there's a creature that was a spirit baby or something that he took that, um, in doing so, I think it made him immortal maybe, and he felt like he was the one who could best run the kingdom, and by him becoming immortal, he guaranteed that his reign would last forever, and that he would bring, I don't know, he, he would make a great kingdom. Um, so in a, in a true example of a white villain, uh, they did something that they believed was for the good of the society, the, something, you know, good for all, but, it, you know, it was kind of not a good thing to do. Um, Anyway, the spirits did not like that they had stolen this, uh, the spirit baby was important, had a philosophical meaning to them, it was very important, and so there was a war. There was a war to get, get it back, and so there was a war between the spirits and the humans. And so Brady had based a lot of this on a lot of, I guess, Shinto, and anyway, it was based on a lot of really, you know, he, he did a lot of research on, ja- on Japanese culture and, and to try to create this world that had a lot of tr- very true Japanese inspiration. Um, Brady made one small mistake, which we learned from, which was the stuff that he used, while very true to the source material, was not what we call resonant, meaning most people who played the game were unaware of it. If you were really into uh, Japanese mythology, you might be aware of some of this stuff, but if you had a less... You know, if your knowledge wasn't quite as deep, you were just unaware of it. And so a lot of what went on in the set um, just read as not Japanese, but just kind of weird. Um, you know, a lot of the, the spirit imagery and stuff, it, it didn't read to a lot of the audience as if it were... You know, they didn't recognize a lot of it. And that, one of the things we've learned about doing, uh, doing top-down things is you need to hit resonance for the audience, meaning you need to hit expectations of what the audience... Um, understands and knows, and that you you can you can throw in some more realistic qualities that are lesser known, but you have to do it at higher rarities. Uh, the good example is in Theros, we had a hundred-handed one, which if you know Greek mythology is a uh, a key character or characters, but it wasn't something the average person had heard of. So what we did is we put it at rare and did this cool card at rare. If you know what the hundred-handed one is, that's cool, and the card was a fun card, but if you didn't, you weren't seeing it all the time. The stuff at lower rarities were things that people were more, more, more people were aware of. And, and so anyway, what happened was, Bill said, okay, we're going to do all the design, all the creative work first, and then they were done, and then design had a design to match the world. Um, the problem that we learned, the lessons of Champs Kamigawa is, creative is a lot more flexible than mechanics. Mechanics, there's, a, there's only so many things you can do. And when things start getting locked in, the problem we started running into was, okay, well, this is this quality of Japanese mythology that we're, you know, inspiration that we're doing. Um, but you're like, oh, but the problem is this color can only do certain things. And that concept isn't really a monocolored thing, but we're not a multicolored set because we were doing um, Ravnica the next year. We didn't want to do multicolor. So, like, trying to get the nuance of actual Japanese inspiration when you you were stuck in a monocolored... Um, and this is back in the day where we had this belief back in the day that if we were going to... The set's going to be about something, we would starve it before you got to it so people would be excited to get to it. So, like... We wouldn't do gold for a couple years, so we finally did a multicolor set. You're like, ooh, yay, a multicolor set. But what we discovered later on was it made it harder to balance. We had what we call the uh, block monster problem, 
where all the tools you needed to do it were in the block, so it became a sort of monster, and it was hard to deal with because all the cards for the one set, or sorry, for the one deck, came from the same block. So when we rotated, it didn't change at all. Uh, we used to call them block monsters, and part of that was because we would starve things ahead of time, so there was no other. What would you put in your, you know, in your two-color deck? Well, we hadn't given you other two-color cards before that. I mean, obviously, you could put some monocolor cards in. Anyway, um, so the structure of the block was trying to match this. Um, and, like, we did the things, like, we knew ninjas were going to be popular, so we held back ninjas and held them for the second set. And So Brian Tinsman was the lead of this, of a, of a, of a fall set. Um, and there's a lot of challenges because trying to match a pre-existing thing where it's like, okay, this is the flavor. You're like, okay, my tools to capture this are limited, especially when I don't have any multicolor cards I get to use. And it's like, you know, it was just really hard because there were a lot of concepts like, oh, how exactly do we represent this? And, um, but anyway, that block structure was very, very much dictated by the idea of we're going to have a flavor and a story and we're just going to follow along. And it was a failure. Um, the lesson there was that design is good. Design is flexible, but design is not infinitely flexible. And part of what you need to do, as we learn now, is you have to work with creative to figure out how to make a resonant world that fits into a magic world. Meaning, there's going to be, you know, uh, the basic land types. You know, there's going to be things that are of these colors. You've got to make sure that your world sort of easily fits these things. And so part of that when you're doing top-down is trying to figure out how to... It's not that every element of the top-down necessarily finds a home. You figure out the ones that make sense and play those up. So when we were doing Gothic Horror, for example, we spent a lot of time energy figuring out where the monsters went. Um, now, also, we allowed ourselves multicolor, so it helped there. But um, a lot of top-down we've learned is you need to involve design early in the process. And you need to involve creative early in the process. That doing one before the other and then make the other sort of fill in the gaps isn't how we get our best work. Um, and that was a big lesson the Champions of Kamigawa. Okay, Mirrodin. So this was, uh, I was, I was big involved in Mirrodin. So Mirrodin, we started from a very mechanical place. Um, so this is back in the day, um, uh, during uh, Bill's reign, one of the big things that happened was really the play-up of themes in design. Um, so your Chemsukamgawa was the flavor block, right? The Japanese block. So um, Mirrodin very first and foremost was, we are going to make a block about artifacts. Um, as you'll see as we go back, we had a couple different themes, and we're like, okay, what's, what, what would the players like? What's the theme they would like? And I really argued that artifacts were popular. People liked artifacts. They're flavorful. They go in any deck. And I said, we got to make an artifact block. So Bill said, okay, you're in charge, Mark. Tell me what you want to do. So I went and talked with the creative team, and I said, okay, here's what I want. I want a world in which um, artifacts go to the core of the world. Could we make a metal world? And so, um, in fact, this is a funny thing. The original inspiration for Mirrodin was we wanted to do artifacts. Uh, originally, what's going to happen, Tyler Bielman, who was in charge of the creative team uh, during Mirrodin, um, Brady was there, but uh, Tyler was in charge of the team at the time. Um, so what happened was... He and I were trying to revamp artifacts a little bit. There was a bunch of things. We thought we could clean up artifacts, and, and uh, he and I spent a lot of time making subtypes for artifacts. 
The idea being there'll be different kinds of artifacts, kind of like there are creature types. We spent a lot of time on this. And we were going to, we had done a whole bunch of stuff to how to separate artifacts from enchantments to try to clean that up. So the original idea was we're going to do an artifact set and we were going to make it, um, use it to clean up a lot of some issues with artifacts. Most of that didn't happen. Um, but what did happen was the idea of a world in which artifacts goes to its core. And so the idea of a metal world um, where artifacts were the biology of the world. And um, we, Tyo and I did a first stab at it. Um, we had come up with this idea of an artificially created plane. Um, and then we handed it over to creative team and they took our not so wonderful idea and turned it into a much, much cooler world. Um, so at the time, the art director, a guy named Jeremy Cranford, uh, did, did a lot of uh, work with some concept artists and did some concept work. And, and he was the one that really said, what if there was metal going through the creatures themselves? Which I had not thought of, and so it's pretty cool. So anyway, uh, that's where Mirrodin came from. Mirrodin really was trying to be the artifact block. Um, what happened was, what happens a lot in early magic sets, blocks, is we kind of painted ourselves into a corner that we started making the block, and by the time we got to the third set, we realized that we had caused all sorts of problems developmentally, uh, and that we had broken some stuff. And so the third set was all about, let's not do what the previous two sets did. And so we came up with this whole spell, uh, sunburst, five-color thing. Hey, it's an artifact block, but at the end, you want to play five-color. The problem was, we didn't really know this going in, and so the earlier sets, especially Mirrodin, hadn't really set up this five-color theme. And remember, the, in the, back in the day, we didn't draft backwards. You know, now we draft the latest set first. We didn't do that. So you would play Mirrodin, which had nothing to help you do five color, then draft um, Darksteel, which a little bit, and then draft um, Fifth Arm, which had a lot, but, but, but you just couldn't bank on. By the time you got there, it was like, if you planned to get it and then you didn't somehow pick it up in the third pack, you were just in trouble. So it just didn't become a good draft strategy. Um, but anyway, that is how Mirrodin came to be. So Onslaught, I did a whole podcast on Onslaught. Onslaught definitely started somewhere else. Uh, Mike Elliott was the one who did Onslaught. Um, I don't know what his original inspiration was. Um, it drifted a lot during um, Divine, uh, which actually wasn't even called Divine at the time. But d- during the end of Design, it, it drifted quite a bit. And it ended up becoming um, this tribal set. But that's not where it started. That was actually not the inspiration. And in fact, I don't even know the inspiration for Onslaught. I'm not sure what Mike was trying to do. Um, I know that he experimented with some stuff that didn't quite work. Uh, and one of the themes he had done was he had done a little bit of playing around. He had made the Moon Mist creatures. Or creature, or I don't, not Moon Mist. Uh, uh, what were they called? Misform. He made the Misform creatures that could change their creature type. Um, and he hadn't done too much with it. And I really latched on to that. And I, I'd wanted to do a tribal set. I really thought, I thought a tribal theme was something that would, that would resonate. And so um, this is me early on. I, t- I explained in the podcast that Bill had me sort of helping him. Um, so this is like my precursor to my becoming head designer. Um, and so I had worked with Mike. And we did a lot to sort of... Uh, I really... I saw some elements of um, a tribal set and sort of pulled those way up because I really thought tribal would be cool. Um, but Onslaught, interestingly enough, did not at all remotely start with a, with a tribal aspect. That was not... Morph wasn't there. You know, Onslaught started from a very different place, and we kind of realized it wasn't working. I don't, I don't remember exactly what Mike, Mike's, what Mike jumped off from. I mean, he had some mechanics, but I, I don't remember, unfortunately. 
Um, but it's a good example of we started in one place and ended in a very different place. Okay, Odyssey. Odyssey, I knew going in that I was interested in graveyard mechanics. Um, we were definitely getting more into themes. The previous year had been um, Invasion. That clearly had a multicolor theme. Um, I've always loved the graveyard. I think the graveyard is very cool. Um, and so I was inspired by doing graveyard things. And so um, we started by doing a lot of experimentation in the graveyard. And we ended up getting Flashback and Threshold, which were the two key mechanics. Um, back in the day, we tended to build around two key mechanics. That's how design was done back in the day. Um, there was like two high-profile mechanics in each block. Um, and I wanted to do a graveyard set, so I made my two big mechanics both revolve around the graveyard. Um, one of them is something that we, we was worked out of the graveyard, which was flashback, and one of which we used what I call graveyard's barometer, which was looking at the graveyard and cared about the graveyard. That was threshold. If you get seven more cards in your graveyard, then it turned on certain cards that had threshold. Um, I did, Odyssey, as I explained many times, the fact that the creative didn't match up with what we were doing, meaning there wasn't a huge graveyard sort of flavor going along with it, which is where Brady got the idea of doing Gothic Horror, which would later lead to Innistrad. Um, but the, the mechanics of the graveyard came through. I mean, I, I overdid it a little bit. Um, my initial design, I had a little more zone changing. I didn't just have things going to the graveyard, but I kept things coming from the graveyard. I had a lot more going on. It was a little more complex. But I, I, the whole design, though, was inspired by a fascination with trying to make the graveyard matter more. Okay, Invasion. So Invasion was the start. I believe Invasion was the first set. Le- uh, well, it's funny. Uh, it's both the first set that Bill was the head designer for, and he was the lead designer on it. Um, the idea of Invasion was I really... i have been pushing a lot for us for for making things a little more thematic, and Bill was on the same page. And so he and I both knew that doing a multicolor set, made, a block, made a lot of sense. It was a very popular theme, um, and that we would that would be the first big theme we'd play up. Um, he, there was a set made by a guy named Barry Reich, who was one of the early playtesters, and he made a set called Spectral Chaos, um, which was very multicolor-oriented. And so Bill's idea was he'd wanted to do a multicolor set. He knew there were some ideas we could take from Spectral Chaos, the domain mechanic, a.k.a. the Barry mechanic, based after Barry Reich, um, came from that. And so we really went to town figuring out how to make a theme play. And the funny thing was, um, originally it was just all ten color pairs, and then uh, I and Henry Stern independently each came up with the idea of holding back the enemy. This is one of the earliest cases of like actual block planning where we said, hey, maybe it would be cool if the last set was about enemy colors. We didn't do enemy colors in the first two sets. And people go, where are the enemy colors? And then, ha we have a set all about the enemy colors. So Apocalypse became the enemy color set. Um, and that was really popular. That's one of the most popular third sets we've ever done. Um, and it really made me realize the importance of just planning a little farther ahead. Um, and later down the road, uh, Invasion would be kind of the thing that would lead me to when I started when I became head designer I was very very inspired by Invasion Block of how it really had a, a plan and the people could see the plan and they were excited when it happened and a lot of my Ravnica Block planning came from trying to follow what Invasion had done okay Mercadian Masks so Mercadian Masks came about um, we were in the middle of telling a story so what had happened way back in Tempest is I had come to uh, a guy named Mike Ryan and I had come to the brand team and said, you know what, we really should have a story. 
You know, our story, we can kind of bounce around. Let's have a big story with major characters and tell a story through the cards. And that was what ended up becoming the Weatherlight Saga. So Invasion was actually the end of the Weatherlight Saga, but the, the seven never really inspired by that. We, it, was, it was played into that, meaning the final invasion does happen in Invasion, for those wondering why it was called Invasion. Um, but Mercadian Mask's inspiration, a lot of it came from... Um, we started with this idea of going to this sort of market world... Um, and I know that um, this was a Mike Elliott set, uh, and I know that Mike was, um, I know that Mike was inspired by trying to get some sense of the world. He made mercenaries and rebels because the world had a little bit of a of a, um, a flavor of the people rebelling, and uh, I know that uh, some of this was. I don't actually. I don't know how much of it was. It's quite possible because back in the day, the story was there. I don't know if the story inspired Mike. Now that I think about it, I think Mike had mechanics that he liked. I think he had spellship. I think it was mechanic based. That Mike had a bunch of different mechanics he thought were cool, and I think that's where Mike's inspiration from Candy Mask came from. Um, it ended up block structure wise following the story because it jumps around. It's one of the few blocks in which it takes place. Different sets take place in different worlds. Mercadia Mask takes place in Mercadia. Nemesis takes place on Wrath. And then um, Prophecy takes place on Dominaria. So the block structure itself was more based on story. Uh, I think the mechanics of it were more based on just mechanic ideas that Mike had. Urza's Saga. So one of the things was there was a big switch in the story. When Mike and I pitched the story, it didn't involve Urza at all. And then the story got taken away from us. The story from another podcast. And the team that was in charge decided they wanted to involve Urza and decided that we were going to take a year off from the modern part of the story and go back in the past and learn about the story from the past. And so we went back to see the saga of Urza. Um, And the idea was, I think the block was trying to follow Urza. The problem was, and this is where there's a big disconnect, mechanically, we were making the set a lot more about enchantments, that Urza was really the first set where, where there's a pretty strong theme weaved in. There was an enchantment theme weaved in. If you go back and look, there's a lot of enchantments, and it's something that's hard. Because of the story, they ended up calling it the Artifact Cycle Block, uh, and because it was Urza, there were a bunch of artifacts, and we happened to make some broken cards, and a lot of them were artifacts, and very few were enchantments. So the enchantment theme got overshadowed by, by story, by broken cards. Urza Saga was a broken environment, so all these things kind of overshadowed what we were doing mechanically. But the block originally had been sort of planned... Um, to be more of an enchantment theme, and that got overridden by the story. Tempest. Okay, so Tempest was, in fact, planned to tell a story. Um, Tempest was a set that I was... Mike and I were in charge of the story. I was in charge of Tempest. I very much... Um, I was inspired... The, the design itself was inspired by cool mechanics, but I then worked early on... Mike and I worked to make sure that the cool mechanics we have, that we crafted a story out of them. So the slivers were part of the story. Um, you know, the shadow was part of the story. That everything we were telling, they, the mechanics weren't just add-ons. We really wove them in. Now, what happened there was I more figured out what mechanics we needed, and then Mike and I worked really hard to make the story ha- take those components and build it into them. And so the block structure was around telling the story, but I was very... It was very driven by making sure we had mechanics, and then because I was doing the story, I was working closely 
to make sure that the mechanics were inspiration for making a story. So we told the story off the mechanics. Um, and we, 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 did, we went a little of both directions, although there were more... There was more making story make sense of mechanics, mechanics make sense of story. Okay, now we get to the Mirage. Okay, so Mirage and Ice Age, which are the last two, actually are very... Tempest was done what we call in-house. I worked at the time... I was working in R&D. I was led the design team for Tempest. That was all done internally. Both Mirage and Ice Age were done externally, uh, although they were done by some people that would later become R&D people. Um, so what happened was, when Richard first did all the playtesting and Magic was you know, going to be made, Richard said, okay, someday we're going to need some more sets. In Richard's mind, it wasn't going to happen quite as fast as it happened. Richard didn't see the explosion that the game would have. I mean, no one really could. Um, but he had some people working. He, in fact, had three different sets being worked on. One was Spectral Chaos that Barry was working on, Barry Reich was working on. One was Mirage that was worked on by Bill Rose, Joel Mick, Charlie Catino, um, Don Felice, Elliot Siegel, Howell Kallenberg. Um, that was a group that Richard had met through Bridge, his Bridge Club. Uh, and then the other group, well, I, we call the Ice Age, play, uh, the Ice, uh, sorry, the um, East Coast Playtafters, um, was Scaff Elias, Jim Lynn, Dave Petty, Chris Page. They're people that Richard had met through the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and so, um, so each of these groups went and made their own set. Um, so let's talk Mirage first, because the group that made Mirage. Oh, because we're talking about Mirage. So that was, um, Bill Rose and Joel Mick led it. Um, Charlie Catina, who works in R&D, also was on it. And there were a bunch of other people that, that have, never came to R&D. Um, but were, you know, they all worked together in, uh, back in Pittsburgh. Um, or not Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia? He went to UPenn. I think UPenn is Philadelphia. Um, if I'm wrong, I apologize to the Philadelphia people or Pennsylvania people. I, I think UPenn is in Philadelphia. Um, anyway, so they had worked on, originally it was called Menagerie, um, and I think the inspiration was they were trying to tell a story. Um, and what happened was back in the day, there was no separate team. The team that made um, Mirage were the same people making the story. And they were very enamored of, I think it was a three-sided war, that there were three different um, mages, and they each had a different faction, and there was a war between them, and... Um, I'm trying to remember, I mean, the, the way the, the story changed a little bit, but uh, essentially there was a war waged, and one of them, um, one of the mages betrayed the other and, and imprisoned him in the Amber Prison, and the, the other mage figured out that there was a double crossing, and um, anyway, the, uh, the story, um, a lot of what they were trying to do was they had the mechanics of phasing and flanking were the two... Ma- this is how we did things back back then, was you had two mechanics. So, like, Tempest had Shadow and Buyback, and Urza Saga had um, uh, Echo and Cycling, and Mercadian... Uh, Command Master didn't have name mechanics. Um, but back in the day, that was the kind of thing. You had two mechanics. So Mirage, its main two mechanics, its named mechanics, were phasing and flanking. Um, and But they were really tied into the story they were trying to tell. I don't know if the story came after the mechanics, the mechanics came after the story... Phasing made things come away and come back, and there was a Teferi who was this planeswalker who was experimenting with time and had phased away part of the part of the world. Um, the interesting thing was Mirage was made to just be two sets, a large and a small set. Um, the idea of blocks were very early back in the day. That Mirage came together. Um, Mirage was the first kind of modern block. Ice Age kind of was a, a staple together block. We'll get to Ice Age in a second. Um, 
But Mirage, uh, that team made Mirage and Visions, and then Weatherlight actually was the precursor to the to the Weatherlight saga. Weatherlight had very little to do with Mirage story wise. Um, we had what we knew we were going to use the Weatherlight, so we'd wo- the Weatherlight got woven back into the story. So there were li- the Weatherlight shows up in the Mirage story just enough that we can then bring some focus to it in the Weatherlight. Um, or maybe I take that back. Maybe it had already been part of the story, and that's the part we, Mike and I had pulled out to, to make our story around. I think it's what happened. Um, yeah, I think when we started the story, we knew we had the flying ship Weatherlight. Um, and Sissy might have already been the captain. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, or maybe we made Sissy and then made her the captain. I forget. Um, so anyway, the uh, Mirage's inspiration really was trying to tell a story and, and, and capture certain mechanics, although it was more mechanic-based as far as structure. Okay, finally we get back to Ice Age. So Ice Age, Ice Age really was meant to be a single one large set. And then when they went and made alliances, there's a lot of pressure saying, hey, could alliances take place in the same world? And the design team was like, well, we really just want to make some cool designs. And it was like, come on, make it the same world. We're like, okay. But a lot of the, most of the connections between alliances and Ice Age were done in development. Design was just trying to make a cool new set. They weren't specifically trying to make another Ice Age set. And so there's a little bit of continuity. Development added a, a little more continuity just to feel like it was the same world. Um, and then the creative stayed on the same world, so the, the creative matched. Um, and I think what happened was the original creative was made by, I think, the East Coast Playtesters. The idea, the Ice Agents, all that, I think they're the ones that came up with that basic story idea. Um, so that once again, there wasn't really a set structure. Like, when they made Ice Age, they didn't even know they were going to make alliances. I mean, obviously, years, years later, we'd make a cold snap to sort of finish out the cycle, but that was us kind of goofing around. Um, so it wasn't actually Final File Cabinet. People don't have, you haven't yet figured that out. Um, so Ice Age was sort of retroactively kind of made into a block. It, in, in its day, it was... Like, Mirage was a block. We introduced it. We introduced it as a block. You know, this was the first set in the Mirage block. Um, Ice Age didn't do any of that. I think Alliances might have said another set in the Ice Age block, maybe. I'm not even sure if the term block existed there. Um, I count Ice Age only because, look, there were multiple sets. In fact, now there's three sets that all take place there. So it does have elements of it. It is the earliest of the blocks. Um, so um, trying to wrap up here because I'm, I'm pulling into work. Uh, so one of the things that I'm... I'm, I'm oh, here's what I didn't do. Let me real quickly. I talked about how Bill Rose was the lead designer from, uh, from um, Invasion Forward. So before him was a man named Joel Mick. So most of um, the block era, from Mirage Forward, I, he wasn't really, I don't think he was in charge of Ice Age. Mirage Forward, which is really the, the block era. Mirage was the first sort of official block. Ice Age is only pieced together in, in retrospect. Um, was Joel Mick. And Joel would later go on to become the brand manager for Magic. So, um... um but anyway, like I said, the, 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 uh, a lot of what this, these podcasts are is it gives some sense of where we came from and what we were trying to do. Um, one of the things you'll see over the year is over the years is what exactly blocks are and how we structured them became a lot more official as time went on. Like for example, early on, Ice Age was it's only in, in, almost in retrospect that they were connected, and Mirage was a little bit connected. And there's some story there, but it still was like here's our two mechanics and Tempest. Had its two mechanics, but had a little more consciousness of trying to tie the story into the mechanics. Um, 
And then Urza Saga and Mercadian Masks and Invasion. Okay, there was a story going on. The black structure at least paid aware of the story. Uh, it still was mechanically driven as far as what the sets were doing. Um, Odyssey and Onslaught. Invasion, Odyssey, Onslaught. We started to do theme blocks where the black at least was about something thematically, mechanically. Um, so Invasion, Odyssey, Onslaught, Mirrodin, Champions, all that was true through sort of Bill's reign. Um, and then when we started getting to my time as head designer, I started really getting into the idea of block structure, that there's a structure to the block. Um, and like I said, Ravnica was inspired a lot by kind of what I'd seen during Invasion, which we kind of backed into. It wasn't something we'd started with and sort of stumbled across a neat idea. Um, oh, you know what I forgot to mention? Odyssey also experimented with doing a block, block stuff where we had a heavy block set in the middle set in Torment, and then we reversed it and had uh, green and white, the enemies of black that were low in that set, were high in the last set in Judgment. So you can see an invasion. We start messing around with ideas of black plans. We don't quite execute them as cleanly. Once we get to Ravnica, I started the block by saying, what are we doing the whole block? What's our plan for the whole block? So that we structured the block out ahead of time, and we knew what each thing was going to, what role it was going to take. So we start getting to Ravnica, the blocks start getting much more spelled out. So Ravnica, Time Spiral, Lorwyn, Shards of Lara, they're much more what is going to happen is spelled out. Uh, so Zendikar, Scars and Mirrodin, maybe I say Scars and Mirrodin, is where I start, I get really into the idea of having tone and mood and sort of having an emotional feel for the block. So that, that's where we started around there. Um, Scars is really where we started hitting it. It's where I consider sort of the fifth age of design starting. Um, and so you start seeing that those last sets that they're, the blocks are much more, we're trying to do an overall thing and get a tone to it, and stories being woven a lot more. You see in Zendikar and Innistrad, the big twist, you know, story-driven to go to a new place. Um, but anyway, hopefully these two podcasts have shown you that like there's a lot of evolution to how blocks have worked and how they've been inspired has changed over time. So anyway, I hope you guys have enjoyed the story, but as I'm in the parking space, we all know what that means. That means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. I'll see you guys next time.